Lomberg is a Danish political scientist. He's the president of the Copenhagen Consensus Centre. Uh, and some would say he's controversial. You might be familiar with his books on climate change, books like The Skeptical Environmentalist and Call It The Skeptical Environmentalist Guide to Global Warming. And he's got a new book coming out right now, actually, called False Alarm, which you can get on Amazon. But look, I don't see him as controversial. He's morally forensic. I tell you, I've never met anyone more determined to solve some of the world's biggest problems like hunger, poverty, climate change, and of course now COVID. And that's why he doesn't let anyone get away with fluffy thinking that might feel good, but doesn't do good. It's why the Guardian newspaper, not known for naming people they don't actually like, um, as one of the 50 people in the world who could actually save the planet. And Time magazine called him one of the 100 most influential people in the world. So now he's applying this cost-benefit analysis approach to COVID responses. And I really wanted to talk to him about what kind of lockdowns does he think are working best, which countries are doing it best, and how will COVID affect the climate debate? Bjorn, it seems to me after weeks of lockdown that scientists don't necessarily know, or rather they don't agree, on a whole lot of things about, about this virus. Uh, what kind of lockdowns work, whether masks work, uh, whether you can get infected twice, whether the infection rate versus the fatality rate uh, is, you know, um, how that works. Is, does that make it really hard to measure the benefits and the costs of, of any kind of lockdown? Well, Josie, again, I'm not I'm not a scientist. I, I work with a lot of economists. So so as you rightly point out, uh, look, there's a lot of uncertainty, uh, but it does seem, uh, you know, you can you can basically if you lock down your society hard enough, you can stamp out uh, the virus. Uh, certainly for now. Uh, the question is, of course, can you act, can you imagine keep on doing that? Uh, for for a year or one and a half years, uh, and the answer there is probably much less clear than that you can stamp it out right now. But the reality is that we need to look at what are those costs involved in stamping it out versus what are the costs of having a virus that kills many people and is obviously very serious. I, I think we've sort of dodged a little bit having that conversation because everyone obviously wants to say, well, sure, we're, we're the kind of people who will save any life at any cost. But in reality, of course, we're not. We don't ever do that in society. And so we need to have this conversation. What is the right amount of lockdown? Yeah, and it seems to me that this false choice between health versus the economy, well, it's always going to be health that wins that one in anybody's life. But actually what the what the choice has been all along the lockdown of, I think, of New Zealand has been every week there's been trade-offs. You know, which businesses stay open, which don't? Do schools close? Do they open? Uh, uh, you know, who can travel where? Who can, who can uh, visit who? These are the sorts of trade-off discussions that we, we just haven't really been involved with because it's always just been presented as health versus economy. Well, and, and in some sense, I know a lot of people have said that's a false trade-off, but, but really, I think it's not. I mean, clearly, if you want everyone to survive, you are going to have a much less vibrant economy. And I think it's it's perhaps helpful to just simply look at it as a uh, in in the metaphor that's much more obvious to most people, uh, namely when you look at traffic deaths. We know that if you 
have a reasonable amount of speed in your in your travel, let's say 100 kilometers an hour, it means some people die. Uh, in Denmark, that's about 200 people a year. But we also, and I, I assume it's roughly the same in, in New Zealand. Uh, but we also know if you put down the the uh, speed limits to five kilometers an hour, no one would die. Yet mm. we don't do that because we very clearly say, look, we want to make as many people survive. We want to make the highways as safe as possible. We want to have airbags and seat belts and all these other things. And we don't want people to speed, you know, at 250 kilometers an hour. But we're not willing to let the economy go and go down to five uh, kilometers an hour and essentially stop society. This is the same conversation that we need to have with Corona, that there is a specific cost in not doing enough, but there is also a cost in doing too much. And that's why we need this conversation of how do you weigh off the costs and benefits? Right. I guess, though, it's hard if, you've, if you're getting information just as a member of the public like today, uh, there was an article in the UK, I think Professor Carol Sikora is his name, where he said that, that it's possible that probably less than half of the deaths happening uh, from COVID are actually happening due to COVID, that the Pepsi people are dying of other things, they're just dying with COVID. So on the one hand, you go, all right, so it's not as fatal. And then suddenly you get a, another story and a statistic from New Delhi saying, you know, the crematoriums are overwhelmed with the dead. So you can't, it's hard to go, well, are 200 people going to die on the roads or are 44,000 people going to die on the roads? And people just don't know, yes. so they get terrified. Yes. And, and, and look, we're, we're not going to get this right as a, as a matter of, you know, the second digit uh, after the decimal point or something. The whole idea here is to have this fundamental conversation about what works and what doesn't. And I think there's there's two places we need to look at this in the rich world and in the developing world. So in the rich world, we have there's there's only one period published study on uh, uh, what's the cost and benefit of a lockdown in the US. And what they looked at was a moderate lockdown. So remember, it's more sort of a Sweden kind of lockdown. You somewhat reduced the, uh, the uh, you somewhat increased social distancing. And what they found was this would have significant cost for the US at about $7 trillion. But the benefits mostly in saved lives, which would be more than a million people saved, would be worth around $12 trillion. So what they find is, if you do a moderate lockdown, and you do it for five months, and you also assume that there's not going to be a second wave, which is somewhat dodgy uh, assumption. If you do this, it is actually a good idea to make a moderate social lockdown. What that tells us is you need to be very careful to not go to an extreme lockdown, because clearly an extreme lockdown is going to be much more costly, and it's uh, on, the, on the margin not going to save nearly as many more people. Also, it is somewhat of a, uh, of, a, of a best case thinking because it requires us uh, to imagine that there's not going to be a second wave. You also need to remember, and this was not included in, in the costs, that there is costs for individuals to be locked down. Uh, a new study from Sweden actually uh, shows that if you just ask people, how much would you be willing to pay to not be locked down? Mm. It turns out 
that they're uh, that you know basically the discomfort of having to stay at home and not being able to do the things that you like to do is significant. So we're talking about at the at the highest level about 220 US dollars per week, uh, which translates into about nine percent of uh, of Sweden's uh, uh, monthly GDP. Uh, so you know a significant extra cost. And then the final cost that we haven't looked at, which is also likely to be very big, is shutting down schools, which basically means that kids learn less, and that means that they will be less productive in their adult lives. So that basically means it's a future cost that's going to be very long, uh, or uh, that's going to last for a very long time. Uh, the Norwegians actually did an estimate of this. Uh, they found that every day you lock down the school, the cost in lost earnings in the future for each one of these kids uh, is about 60 US dollars per mm. pupil per day. Uh, so again, uh, about 16% of, uh, of Norwegian monthly GDP. So a significant cost. And then of course, there are all these other costs uh, that we know about, but we that are hard to quantify, you know, domestic violence, the fact that a lot of other uh, treatments are, are postponed, you know, a lot of people with uh, 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 kidney disease or cancer or uh, needed other operations, people who were going to get their hips replaced and so on uh, have been postponed and some of them will probably die. Some of them will certainly uh, live with a lot more suffering and, and some will simply end up being pushed so that everyone will be a little more uncomfortable. These are also costs that we haven't looked into. So we got to be realistic. There is a definite benefit in moderate social lockdown for rich countries, but I think we are not very well aware of the enormous costs that we're also talking about, and we need to weigh those two. So you're absolutely right. There's a lot of uncertainty, but what we do know is it's only just okay as a cost-benefit analysis to do this in the rich world. Yeah, and actually there was another survey, I think out by Deutsche Bank this week, showing that, that people's tolerance for, for sacrifices to contain the virus is actually collapsing. So, yeah, you lock people down, as we have been in New Zealand for, you know, more than eight weeks or so on a very strict lockdown. And, and now you're finding when we've gone to the sort of lowest level of lockdown, people have just stopped uh, doing it, actually. So, yeah. you know, you, there's a behavioural and- economics there too, right? And I think we've we've totally underestimated the fact that our responses have to be sustainable. Uh, you have to be able to imagine that you can do these policies for the next year or two years until we have a cure or a vaccine, which incidentally is not a given that we'll ever have that. So the reality here is if we do something that, as you point out, is very, very hard on everyone. Sure, they're going to give it their best for the first time. But when the second wave come and when the third wave come, it seems much less likely that we're willing to, to do those sacrifices. And of course, if the second and third wave uh, arrives, we're also uh, going to be facing a cost-benefit analysis that shows it was a much less effective deal for the rich world. But I think all of this, in some ways, uh, emphasizes the rich world is a place where we're very well off. That means we can afford to say, look, we're going to spend billions to save people. We can afford this. At the same time, we're also fairly old. Uh, so you know, in Italy, uh, we're, uh, 23% of all people are above 65 years of age. So clearly, a lot of people will benefit from a lockdown. These are not the cases 
in the developing world. Oh, sorry, I should also just mention, we also have a pretty good healthcare system. So if you do a moderate or strict lockdown, you actually can uh, flatten the curve, which means you can bring the infection rate below the capacity level of the hospital uh, system. That means many, many fewer people will die. All of these three points point towards it's a better idea to do in the rich world. But remember, the vast number of people in the world live in the developing world. And for these countries, it turns out that none of these three points I just made hold. First of all, they don't have, you know, every fifth or sixth person is not over 65. Uh, in the developing world, in the least developed uh, countries, it's about 3%. So they have much, much less uh, risky population. Secondly, they're much poorer. That means they have many other things that they care much, much more about and where they die much cl more clearly from. And the third thing, of course, is that their healthcare systems are typically so weak that there's no way you can flatten the curve to anything that'll actually bring the uh, infectious diseases below the capacity. So you're actually getting much less benefit and there are much fewer uh, people who will benefit from this and they're much poorer and need to deal with so many other things. So there, it is much less clear whether the cost benefit will be a benefit, well, whether it'll be a net benefit to actually uh, even engage in moderate social distancing. And we have done studies on two of, uh, of these uh, uh, less developed countries. So one from Malawi in Africa, one of the uh, uh, poorest countries in the world, and one for Ghana, one of the richest uh, countries in Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, uh, about $1,700 per, per capita per year. Uh, so like India. And what we found for both of them is that it actually vastly the costs of locking down, even a moderate lockdown, vastly outweigh the benefits. That is, for developing countries, for poor countries, it's probably a really bad idea to even do a moderate lockdown. Mm. So in the Pacific, for example, you would have you know, maybe one or two ICU beds in a country, and forget Solomon Islands yep. or, or the Cook Islands. So this whole argument that you can flatten the curve in order to manage the capacity of your health system to absorb some infections and some illnesses kind of goes out the window if you actually haven't got any yes. capacity at all. Um, it's still a hard argument to get across, isn't it, though, that if you're going, I know in, in Malawi, you go, well, uh, uh, there's a net loss of about 26,000 years of life, I think you, you found out, because mostly elderly people will die of COVID, but you've got a lot of young people, 22,000, who will die of HIV AIDS or, or, or die of um, uh, TB or something. It's still a hard argument to get across, isn't it, that you that you're going, okay, we can we can allow elderly people to die, but not younger people. I, I, I get the argument. It's just a hard one to communicate. Well, jo jo Josie, it's it's very clearly it's a it's a morally. Uh, an emotionally hard argument, but I think if you look into the numbers, it's actually really hard to not do what the cost-benefit analysis uh, says. And that's, of course, also why most developing countries are realizing there's no way we can afford to shut down. But let me just give you sort of the very rough version of this. Uh, so for Malawi, we estimate that uh, any inf uh, pandemic like uh, this corona pandemic would have been costly even if they had done nothing. But it'll be even costlier 
when they try to moderately lock down the economy. Uh, and so we estimate over the next 30 years, it'll probably cost Malawi about $6 billion, all these in, are in US dollars, so $6 billion. Uh, that's about one year of, of Malawian GDP. Then we also estimate that because you shut down schools, you actually get less productivity in the future. And remember, this basically means that all these generations that are now locked out of school, and because this is a very young country, uh, this will be a very large proportion of the entirety of Malawi. They will, for the next 60 years, as they get old and get out into the uh, workforce, they will be slightly less productive simply because they didn't learn as much because the schools were shut down. That also cost about $6 billion dollars. Uh, or about a year of GDP. But the benefit is that you actually save, you, uh, we estimate with the Imperial College models, you save about 12,000 people uh, from COVID. You also save some more people who don't die because there's less traffic accidents. So about 1,500 people won't die from that. Uh, there'll be more uh, less uh, outdoor air pollution, but more indoor air pollution that probably cancels out uh, because hospital wards will be less affected. You will actually have fewer extra people die from HIV, uh, which is a good thing. Unfortunately, because of all the district uh, uh, healthcare centers, you will have more people dying from uh, tuberculosis, you'll have more people dying from malaria, and you'll have more malnutrition. So overall, we estimate that if you do this, you can save about 7,000 people. And this is the real conundrum here. So we're talking about saving, saying you can save 7,000 people for $12 billion. Now, any good person will obviously say, well, but surely we should save any person we possibly can at whatever cost necessary. But the point is to recognize we don't do that. Right now, every year in Malawi, 22,000 people, as you mentioned, 22,000 people die from HIV AIDS. These are almost all deaths that we could have avoided at fairly low cost. Mm. Yet we don't do this. So just to give you a sense of proportion, we estimate that you could save 7,000 people. So the same number of people that we can save with corona policies. We could save 7,000 people from HIV AIDS for $3 million. So for one four thousandth of the cost, we could save the same number of people. Or to put it differently, every time corona policies will save one person, you could have saved 4,000 people for the same amount of money. Yeah. Here, yes. the point, of course, becomes why the hell would we want to be spending a lot of resources to save a few people first before we spend less resources and save many, many more people? This is the real challenge that Malawi and most other developing countries will be in. Why would we be spending $12 billion of our hard-earned uh, wealth to save just 7,000 people when we could save many, many more people for just a fraction of that cost. This is the real challenge. And of course, that's why cost-benefit analysis is not some sort of cold-hearted, oh, money is more important than, than people. It's actually a very compassionate way to make sure that we don't focus on the things that get on the front pages of papers, but we actually focus, focus on the solutions that will help the most people for the least money first. 
And just because these conversations are really hard to have doesn't mean we shouldn't be having them and having them widely, not behind closed doors. Of of course, of course. I mean, just to be very clear, if we don't have this conversation, it doesn't mean the prioritization goes away. It simply means we didn't have uh, an opportunity to talk about, did we do the smart thing? And that's, of course, why I think cost-benefit analysis It's not the only answer to the world by no means, but it's a very important part of the information to make us Mm. make smart choices rather than just the politically expedient and convenient or feel-good choices that we often end up doing. Bjorn, if you think, if you were to, I mean, I know you can't do this, but if you were looking back in a year's time, and let's assume in a year's time we know more, which countries do you think will have done it right or as good as oh, the, close I, to right. Yes, I, I think this is incredibly hard to know uh, for a variety of different reasons. But let me give you a few thoughts about this. So very obviously, we're all looking at New Zealand and saying, wow, uh, you know, imagine being free of COVID. That, that sounds really great. So maybe for island nations where this is a possibility, this could end up being a really good strategy. Now, if it comes back, Clearly, it will turn out to have been a much, much poorer strategy. For most of the world, it seems like it's very unlikely that you can just simply lock it out, unless you're a really uh, 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 effective dictatorship like uh, in China. So it seems like it is not a viable option to imagine that you can eradicate uh, corona uh, for the next couple of years. Then the question becomes, have uh, are the, the 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 kind of ways that many, for instance, European countries have done, which is basically a very strong lockdown, uh, really ramping down to close to zero, or is the Swedish model, which is much more sort of keep the society reasonably open, do mo- uh, moderate social distancing, but make sure it doesn't cost too much, but which of course also has much higher infection rates and much higher death rates. It is unclear which one of these two are the best ones, and we won't know uh, for a while. But I think it really comes down to the fact of saying, if there is a second and third wave, which a lot of people suggest is inevitable, then the Swedish model will have been better. If we can entirely eradicate it, then clearly uh, the Denmark, Italy, uh, uh, Holland sort of approach will have been better. Mm. And, And then we look at something like the OECD report that came out this week, where there's a 6% global contraction predicted, I think, economic contraction. And then yes. New Zealand of that of OECD countries is going to be one of the hardest hit, I think nearly 9% contraction. So, uh, you know, you've got to take into consideration all of that as well, right? So it's, it's um, if our lockdown is such that we've flattened the economy and destroyed jobs and, and uh, um, you know, the wage subsidy runs out, we've stopped migrants coming in because we've got closed borders, holds back consumption. Uh, you know, we've got to measure the, the cost of that as well in a year's time too. Yes. And, and I, I think it's important to sort of, uh, again, we're rich countries, so we can afford to a large extent to really say we want to spend resources to save people. But it doesn't mean we're rich in the sense that we have uh, an infinite amount of resources. So clearly, if we are going to be poor because of this, and we all are, uh, so for instance, for the U.S., uh, there's an expectation this is going to drive up uh, public debt 
uh, somewhere between 25 and 30% in the OECD report of, of, uh, of GDP. That's a huge cost to leave to future generations. Clearly, this is not just about, you know, that you can have an extra flat screen TV. This is much more about the fact that we won't have as many resources to care for elderly, to have better health care, to have better infrastructure, better schools, better uh, kindergartens, all these other things that also matter to us. Some of these are actually going to result in deaths, but many other of these are going to result in slightly less good lives. Those are real costs. And that's why I think it's important to say we cannot just say we're going to save as many lives as possible because we never do that. We don't do that in traffic accidents. And so we're not going to, or we should not do this in Corona either. We should be careful and say, look, here's a big problem. How do we solve it? How do we solve it effectively, both given that we can reduce the amount of death, but we also have to remember we don't want to end up screwing over the future, both in terms of a, a lost economy, but also, and I think crucially, in cutting out our youngs from schools and therefore actually giving them less great opportunities for their future. Do you think we're looking at the kind of depression or, or a great recession similar to Germany 1920s or, or the US in the 1930s? I think that's hard to tell. It's a, it's a very different kind of approach so, because uh, back then we didn't know how to restart the economy. And there's a good chance that the, that the restart will happen much, much more easily and effectively. If that happens, it's not going to be anywhere near this. But I think nobody should be under any uh, uh, expectation that this is going to be nice and easy. So the economists called this the 90% world. And I think that's that's uh, 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 the right way to think about this. We will just not have this, uh, as many resources for all the other things that we care about in the world, uh, from anywhere from you know schooling and healthcare uh, to uh, 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 environment and infrastructure. All of these things are going to be harder to fund. And so we got to be very, very careful that we don't put ourselves in a position where we'll have to repeat this with the second and third wave uh, in a half a year or a year. Uh, I, I think, and I, I get that sense myself, you know, you, you've been locked down, you're sort of sick and tired of this. And then, you know, you you get these good news. Oh, things are about to be over. You feel, all right, we're done. And of course that was exactly what people felt after the first wave back in 1918, uh, when you thought, all right, this was hard, but now we're done and everything's going to go back to normal. And it will go back to normal for almost half a year. And then you get the second wave. I think that is the thing that we just are very bad at, uh, at sort of envisioning is going to happen in half a year. And if, if that happens, then obviously it's going to be much more costly and much more terrible. And that's where we really need to have had the conversation did we do the right thing if we did a very strong lockdown? And also, in the meantime, trade has fallen off a cliff too, which it was already in trouble before COVID. And now we're seeing some trade deals, uh, the Mercosur trade deal off the table, I think. And a lot of your research has shown that the, the thing that lifts the most people out of poverty is trade. So exactly. you know, that's another yeah, th th whole. This is, this, is, this is very depressing. And, and, and I think we've forgotten why it is that we have gotten so well off as we have. The, the reason is that 
you know, we're talking of a Zoom right now. I don't know how to do Zoom. I've never done Zoom. That's not what I do. It's probably not what you do either. And we're surrounded by things and opportunities that are not done by us, but are possible because we have a global uh, distribution of skills and ability. So everyone does what they do best. This is what makes us wealthy. This is what makes us well off. And shutting down that international trade will have impacts. It's not going to take us back to medieval times or anything, but it will mean that we'll forego having as many opportunities and as, as much wealth as we could otherwise have had. That is a real big problem. And, and you know, when people are saying this shows that we need to you know, go back to having much, uh, uh, much more closed loop and much closer to home uh, 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 supply chains, all that kind of thing, um, there's a little bit of truth in it, but there's also a lot of special interest pleading uh, that actually just want you to start buying more expensive stuff that's made by people who can only produce it if they get uh, regulation that says you can't buy it uh, cheaper and further away. I remember reading a meme just before lockdown and COVID saying climate change would like the contact number for COVID's PR agent. Uh, we know, we've all stopped talking about climate change, we're all talking about COVID. How do you think COVID will impact the, the climate change debate, given that pandemic is a really bad way to reduce CO2 emissions? But you know, yeah, it, yes. What, and what and it's actually bad in two ways. It's both bad in the sense that it uh, it's obviously something we don't want, but also it's not been very effective at it. Uh, even, even us cutting all this CO2, uh, our emissions uh, over this year because of an incredible human-induced uh, 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 recession uh, means that temperatures by the end of the century will, will be one thousandth of a degree centigrade lower. So it's really bad in both ways. So actually we've achieved almost nothing uh, from, from a climate point of view at very, very high cost. And this of course emphasizes that climate solutions are inherently very expensive. Now, they also have benefits, but they're inherently very expensive. So COVID will have two impacts. First of all, if we're much less rich as we come out of COVID, we're going to be much less willing to spend huge amounts of cash on, for instance, climate change and other, other luxury items as we might think of them. And that simply means I think it's going to be a lot harder to imagine that uh, countries are going to go through with many of their promises. And this means that we'll have less climate action. The second thing is, I think, and this is the sort of upside, the silver lining, if you will, I think there's a chance that COVID will finally show us something that we've always known, namely that any big global problem is great to solve, but the solution also often comes at a great cost. So we've just learned that, sure, a lockdown will solve a lot of the problems, but it also has an enormous cost. We need to weigh those costs and benefits. That's what we've just spent the last half hour talking about. I think there's a chance that we will get to the same point with climate, realizing that climate is a big challenge, but cutting carbon emissions, certainly now, and certainly while we don't have a good technology to dramatically reduce carbon emissions, is also phenomenally costly. And what most cost-benefit analyses show is that we're doing it really badly right now, that we're actually spending an enormous amount of money and doing only fairly little good for climate. That's why we need to find, just like with the corona challenge, smarter, 
better, more effective ways to tackle climate. If one good things come out of, of, uh, of the corona crisis, I hope that that will be that we will start approaching the climate crisis smarter and more effectively. That means in, in spend not in on uh, you know putting up inefficient solar panels and wind turbines now, but invest dramatically more in research and development into green energy to make those future energy technologies so cheap that everyone will want to buy them. Uh, economic studies show that that would be hundreds of times more effective and likely also uh, something that would be uh, so fairly moderately costly that we can actually envision that we'll end up spending the resources to get it. That was Bjorn Lomberg, president of the Copenhagen Consensus Centre, and you can get his latest book, False Alarm, on Amazon. So you can see what I mean about him being morally forensic. For him, cost-benefit analysis is not some kind of cold-hearted, money's more important than people thing. It's actually a very compassionate way of making sure that we don't just focus on what's fashionable, what's going through social media, but that we focus on the solutions that can help the most people for the least money first. So it's not about foregoing a flat screen TV next year or not. It's about do we want to live in a 90% world where actually we might struggle in the future to pay for the things that we've just taken for granted. World-class education, good health, looking after our environment, having enough money to build stuff. So maybe New Zealand will turn out to have had the best COVID response in the world. But if we have to stay in our bubble of 5 million for a few years, that might be difficult. The point is our responses have to be sustainable. And as Bjorn says, you have to be able to imagine that you can keep doing this for the next year or two years or longer until we have a cure or a vaccine. And what if they never have a cure or a vaccine? The point is, these are conversations that we all need to be part of. I'm Josie Pagani, and this is Politics Post-COVID. Mm-hmm.